Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Now today I'm teaching in the book of James chapter 3. And as usual, I'm reading from the New International Version. So let's jump right in and begin our study. Uh, James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So now here James is opening chapter 3 by warning us not to take it upon ourselves to become teachers of the word of God, because he says that those who teach the word are going to be judged by a stricter standard. Um, to teach others is, a, is a, a great responsibility. It requires us to have greater knowledge and greater understanding than the people that we teach. This greater knowledge and understanding of God's word makes us it makes us more accountable to God, to, to live up to the higher standards that we teach. We have to practice what we preach or practice what we teach. And so we're required to, uh, uh, to go further and to do more. We, we don't have the luxury of teaching and, and compelling other people to do things that we're not willing or able to do ourselves. So um, Paul lists a, a long he gives a long list of, of requirements for those who are to be leaders in the church in, in the book of uh, uh, Timothy chapter 3. I believe it's 1 Timothy chapter 3 and also in the book of Titus. Um, he gives a long list of, of qualifications of those who are to be leaders in the church. And that list is meant to be exclusive. Um, it's meant to exclude people who, who were not uh, prepared. And so James is here uh, warning us not to be cavalier about teaching. Um, if we aspire to be teachers, we must be willing to model the very things that we teach. If we teach, God will judge us as teachers and not as students. So that's important to know. Jesus addressed this issue uh, of the greater responsibility that, that, that actually comes with greater knowledge in Luke chapter 12. He said, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many, many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That's Luke chapter 12 verse 47 and 48 in the New International Version. The, uh, the Apostle Paul also addressed this issue, uh, leveling a stern rebuke uh, against those who prided themselves in being able to teach the law uh, of God, but were not doing it themselves. They were not obeying the law that they, that they taught. And Paul wrote, uh, you think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, but you are certain that in God's law, you have complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? 
You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you do it? You condemn idolatry, but do you steal from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dis, uh, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, the word of the world blasphemes the name of God because of you. That's Romans chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. So Paul made it clear that the consequences resulting from those who teach the word of God, but, but don't adhere to it themselves, is blasphemy among un unbelievers. When, we, when we're hypocritical about the, the, the things that we do, we teach one thing and do another, it gives the uh, unbelievers the opportunity. It compels them in a way to, to blaspheme God and, and to discredit uh, the way of righteousness. And this is the same thing that results when we claim to be people of faith um, but don't have works to go with them and, and, and the conduct to back it up. Uh, we become a stumbling block in people's way when we say one thing and do another. They see us as hypocrites, knowing that if we really believe what we claim to believe, uh, we would act like it. So it, uh, it's important that we do what we say. And, and, and James is warning us, just don't run out and take it upon yourself to be a teacher because there's so much that goes with it that a lot of people don't understand. Now, verse two, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. In verse two, James deals with what is probably one of the, uh, the greatest challenges people face, that is controlling the tongue. We all make mistakes. But the greatest area of weakness or, or challenge, the greatest potential that we have to do evil is by means of our human tongue. It's so easy to let words just flow right out of our mouths, to say stuff uh, without filtering it. So it's important that we uh, work with the Holy Spirit to control what comes out of our mouth. This passage is actually encouraging because it affirms what we all know uh, about ourselves. That is, that none of us have attained perfection. Paul, uh, James says that right out of the chute. Uh, even the great apostle Paul admitted that he, he, he wasn't perfect yet. He had a lot to do and a lot to learn, and that's in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Um, but the point that James is making here is that the tongue is one thing that tends to cause people to stumble. Uh, it's the member of our body that is, that is most challenging to control. If we can master it, we can master everything else about ourselves. Now, verses three through five. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boats. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So James uses the bit um, that, uh, you know, that people use to, to control horses here. He's, uh, um, uh, he uses that bit, that thing that uh, a person puts in a horse's mouth and, 
and they're able to control the horse by that little little bit. Uh, and then he uses uh, the, uh, the, the rudder of a ship, a huge ship. It, it, it's able to steer that whole ship, that, that small rudder. And he uses this to illustrate the power that, pe- that the tongue wells over a person's life. Um, it is a small member, but it, but it has such a great effect upon things and upon people. It's, uh, it's interesting to know that people most often don't control their tongues, but are controlled by it. Uh, the tongue is among the smallest organs in the human body, um, but it has the potential to do great harm. Paul used the, the illustration of a small, uh, just a tiny bit of fire, just a little spark. It can burn down a whole forest. You can take a match or, or sometimes a person just thump a cigarette out and, and burn down a whole forest. And so uh, James is using this as an illustration of the potential damage that the tongue can do. Now, our tongue can do a lot of damage, but they can also do a lot of good. If we bring them under control of the Holy Spirit, uh, they'll do a lot of good. Now, concerning the potential of the tongue, King Solomon wrote these words. Those who love to talk will experience the consequences, for the tongue can kill or nourish life. That's Proverbs 18.21 in the New Living Translation. So James compares the tongue to that tiny spark that can do so much damage. Now, verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. The tongue is a dangerous, destructive member because most people often fail to control their tongue. James is emphasizing uh, the damage that it does. Again, the tongue corrupts the whole person, James says. The tongue sets the whole course of a person's life on fire. A person can, can separate friends or or create the distrust, or or do all kinds of destroy a person's reputation uh, just uh, by recklessly saying things and dropping little hints here and there. So uh, we often think about the damage that the that uh, the tongue does to other people, but James is is telling us that the tongue also damages us if we if we don't. Uh, manage it right, the things that we say can affect us. Fire is used to illustrate the total total devastation that the human tongue can, can cause. And although the tongue can, can, again, as I said earlier, be an instrument of good as well as evil, um, people too often use it to do evil. And, uh, that's why James is, is so emphatic about this. He is stressing so much. He's warning, uh, warning with such great urgency that we have to learn to manage our tongues. King Solomon also warned about the devastation that uh, a wicked tongue can cause. And, and he wrote these words, a troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. And that's in Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. Paul also issued a stern warning against those who use uh, the tongue destructively. Um, when issuing the qualification for widows to receive assistance from the church, he warned to accept. Uh, he he warned uh, Timothy 
not to accept the younger widows. He said, don't accept the younger widows. And he gave the reason why. He wrote, uh, and if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things they shouldn't. So uh, Paul, um, he assumed that the younger widows, for the most part, um, don't manage their tongues and uh, that they would uh, uh, be idle. They would use the time that they have if, if they are supported by the church not to do what is good, but to do what is what is evil. Um, he is assuming that younger widows don't have the control that older widows would have. And so he urged those younger widows to get married, and to raise families and, and to uh, do what's good. Now, I'm reading verses seven through eight. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So James says the tongue is wilder and more uncontrollable than the wildest kinds of animals or certain reptiles or, or birds and that the, uh, uh, the tongue is full of deadly poison. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous member and it must be handled with extreme caution. Paul used similar uh, uh, metaphorical language. Paul agreeing with, with James. Uh, he used some metaphors to condemn the, the sins of the tongue. Uh, and he wrote in Romans chapter three, their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their speech is filled with lies. The poison of deadly snake, uh, of a deadly snake drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's in Romans three thirteen through 14. Uh, so after pointing out the, the, the terrible wickedness of the tongue, Paul certainly agrees with James. James points out that uh, no one can tame it. Uh, it can't be tamed. Uh, this would be a reason for a, a discouragement if, if we didn't take into consideration the fact that the Holy Spirit can tame our tongues. We can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can bring our tongues under control if we cooperate with the Spirit. We're willing to cooperate with the Spirit and, and yield to what the Spirit says, then he, he will give us power over our tongue. Now, verses 9 through 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. We've been made in God, uh, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So now again, James emphasizes the difficulty of taming the tongue and the inconsistent ways people use their tongue. They, they bless God on one hand and curse men. Sinful and damaging, damaging nature of the tongue is often minimized among people. We don't think of it as being a serious sin. We, um, we place gossip and slander and uh, sometimes even lying and cursing. Um, people tend to place that with uh, minor sins, minor minor offenses. But James is elevating this sin to a, a, a serious and 
and deadly sin, that it's a, uh, it's in the category of stealing or sexual immorality or, or drunkenness. And, and so um, some people claim to be spiritual, but use a sharp tongue to judge and criticize and, and condemn people rather than to heal and encourage. So uh, it's a serious business. And, and James, uh, the Lord thought it was so uh, important, it's such a serious issue that he had it put in our scripture here. He had James to deal with it uh, in his epistle here. Now, in his epistle to the Romans, Paul included the sins of the tongue uh, among the worst kinds of sins and warned that those who practiced these sins were worthy of death. Here's what he wrote. Their lives become full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, fighting, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backbiters. They are fully aware of God's death penalty for those who do these things, yet they go right ahead and do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 29, 30, and 32 in the New Living Translation. So this thing of using the tongue is a serious sin, and now that we realize that it's a serious sin, we have to give it serious consideration. We have to take it uh, to God in prayer and, and seek the power of the Holy Spirit to bring our tongues under the control of the Holy Spirit. Inconsistent tongue cursing, then blessing, calls our, uh, it, it causes our Christian identity into, into question. This kind of conduct, using our tongue to... Uh, to do damage and commit sin is in opposition to the character and, and the conduct of Christ. So Christ didn't bless God and curse men. He consistently blessed both God and man. So we want to be Christ-like. We want to follow his example. Now, of course, there are times when uh, Jesus rebuked people who were hardened and who would not listen and uh, who were religious and, and hate-filled. He did rebuke, but most of the time Jesus, uh, he taught, he encouraged, he strengthened, uh, and, and he, uh, he blessed people. If we follow Christ, we have to endeavor to use our words the way he did. Okay. Now, if we have the opportunity to be envious, uh, he talks about envy, James include that in here. Envy is nearly always expressed by unkind and and disparaging words. The cure for in envy is uh, confession in prayer to God, take it to God in prayer, and uh, and request God to help us to overcome that thing. Uh, and it's also important to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. That person who is the target of your envy, rejoice with them and celebrate with them in the, in the things that they have accomplished. If they bought a new house, uh, uh, celebrate that with them and, 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 uh, encourage them and, and, and congratulate them and even buy them a housewarming gift. Uh, don't give in to the temptation to use your tongue in a disparaging way because you're in, uh, because you're envious of somebody. You're not, you're not being hypocritical because you're saying the right thing. You're obeying God. And even though uh, while you are encouraging people and celebrating with them, you might have feelings of envy in your heart. 
just don't let those things come out. Don't manifest it. Confess them to God. Do what's right. And in time, God will bring your attitude. He'll bring your feelings in line uh, with your obedience. If you're, if you're blessing uh, those uh, who have been blessed, if you're celebrating with them, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, then God will see that and God will help you. Okay. Now, there are many ways to use our tongue for destructive purposes, as I said, and there are many ways to use our tongue for constructive purposes. As Christians, we have to strive and pray for the Holy Spirit to help us, convict us, and to uh, help us to use our tongue in a positive way. Now, it's, it's a blessing when you are convicted by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit brings that feeling of, 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 of guilt because of, of sin that you've committed. Uh, thank God for that, because if the Holy Spirit didn't touch you there, make you sensitive there, then you wouldn't want to do anything about it. So when we do wrong with our tongues or in a, any other way, when we do wrong, then the Holy Spirit should convict our hearts. If our hearts are tender, uh, we will feel that. And we will feel that we've done wrong. And when we do wrong, uh, don't deny it. Embrace it. And, and admit to God that, that you've done wrong, that you've missed it, that you fail, uh, you use your tongue in the wrong way, you gave in to envy, whatever the situation is, and let God fix it for you. If you confess it, uh, he will help you to overcome it. And thank God that he gives us convictions when we do wrong. Now, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now James moves on to the subject of wisdom. He defines godly wisdom as evidenced by a consistent life of good deeds. James says we show the wisdom of God by the good that we do, because God is good. And, and if we have his wisdom, we will imitate his goodness. So it's wise to do good. Wisdom leads us to do what's good. The Bible says in, in Proverbs 8 and 20, um, I walk along the path of justice. He walks along the path of righteousness and justice. And so um, the wisdom of God will compel us to do what is right. Agreeing with James, Paul also made this crystal clear in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And here's what he wrote. But though your hearts were once full of darkness, now you're full of light from the Lord, and your behavior should show it. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. That's Ephesians 5, 8, and 9 in the New Living Translation. Uh, Jesus corrected the uh, vindictive thinking and teachings of the people of his day, by, uh, and he taught them that, that God in his wisdom is even good to his enemies, okay? He said this, you have heard that it had been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that, that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And you may be the children of your father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. That's Matthew 5, 43 through 45 in the King James Version. 
So Jesus commanded us to follow the example of, of God our Father, the example that he sets so that we will demonstrate to the world that we indeed are his children because our actions uh, bear a striking resemble, resemblance to, to his actions and a similarity to the way he does things. Godly wisdom is clearly defined by the good and kind deeds that he that he does for others and and that we do for others as as his children. So James also pointed out a second important uh, quality that it, that identifies godly wisdom. We should never boast over the good that we do. He talks about James talks about humility as that second quality. He says we should never boast over the good that we do. We uh, we should let other people praise us. Let the Lord do the praising. Jesus said our good deeds should be done in secret, not with a trumpet, not with blasting, not with boasting. If we do our good deeds without bragging about them or seeking recognition, we have a reward coming from God. But if we're doing our good deeds just to be seen, then there is no, no reward. And Paul made it clear that the good that we do is the result of God working in us. We should realize that, first of all, that uh, we are not innately good. We do good because God compels it in us. He is the one who is working in us both the will and the do of his good pleasure. And that's in Philippians 2, 13. Now, even when we do what is good and right, we don't have anything to boast about. Paul clarified this issue with the following question. He asked, what makes you better than anyone else? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why boast as though you have accomplished something on your own? That's 1 Corinthians 4 and 7 in the New Living Translation. So there are no self-made people. There is no one who pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. Our boots and our bootstraps come from the goodness of God. So we don't have anything to boast about. And so uh, if we're demonstrating the wisdom of God, we are embracing humility. We are humbling ourselves and giving all the glory and all the praise to God. Now, verses 14 through 16. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. There are two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Satan. James gives us a barometer to gauge which of the two kinds of wisdom that we're operating in. Godly wisdom is the knowledge of what is good and right and how to apply it in our lives. Wisdom from God is demonstrated when we know what is right to do in a given situation and we choose to do what's right. That's God's wisdom. The result is the ultimate benefit for us and for others. Godly wisdom is demonstrated by good decisions and good judgment. 
decisions uh, that result in good outcomes. They take into consideration whether or not our actions will please God and harmonize with his words and how they affect other people. That's godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is guided by love and regard for God and for other people. It is honest in its dealings. It's sensitive to the needs of others. It operates by the moral compass of God's word. That's godly wisdom. In Proverbs chapter eight, Solomon described the attributes of godly wisdom. He wrote, and, and he, uh, he is presenting wisdom as if, as if it is a person. He's personifying wisdom. And here's what he said. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true. For my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. I walk in the way of righteousness along the path of justice. That's Proverbs chapter 8, verses 6, 7, 8, 12, 13, and 20 in the New International Version. So godly wisdom does what is right. Godly wisdom takes its cue from God. It flows with the Holy Spirit. It harmonizes with the word of God. And then there is satanic wisdom. Satanic wisdom, on the other hand, is the evil application of knowledge. It is motivated by the devil and aims to satisfy the selfish ambitions of the individual in opposition to the will of God. James cites two characteristics of satanic wisdom, jealousy and selfishness. These defects in character create disorder and every kind of evil, James says, in the pursuit of selfish ambition. Jealousy, selfish ambition, breeds the spirit of competition. Keeping ahead of the Joneses, it fuels greed and, and, uh, and selfishness because at each level of the socioeconomic ladder um, are new sets of Joneses. As you go up, when you're on the bottom, you've got the bottom Joneses. They're poor like you, but you might have a little bit more than they do. Okay. Oh, you go up to middle class. Now you got the middle class Joneses. You got to keep up with them. All right. Then you go up. Maybe you get rich. Now, now you've got the Joneses who have much more money than you. Now you got to keep up with them. And that's why people become millionaires, billionaires. They keep hoarding wealth because they've got a, a, another set of Joneses that they've got to keep up with. And that's satanic. That is the, the carrot on a stick that's leading a person along. They never get to where they're going. They're controlled by Satan. When we're motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition, we can never be fully satisfied. So I don't care where you get. It's always going to be a, um, a desire and a hunger for more. Satanic wisdom uses lies, cheating, deception, stealing, and in some cases, even killing to achieve success. It's often displayed in jealousy and quarreling and vicious gossip and violent behavior as contentions of selfish, ambitious people break forth. So they, 
They're fighting, they're quarreling, they're arguing. It's all, it's all about self. Now, any action or endeavor that's motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambi ambition is an indicator that that is satanic wisdom. These are the enemies of godly wisdom. Those who claim to have wisdom while acting on these things and acting like this, they're only lying to themselves. They don't have God's wisdom. They're operating in satanic wisdom. Verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In direct uh, contrast or contradiction to devilish wisdom, James defines godly wisdom as being pure or selfless rather than selfish, peace-loving rather than quarrelsome and, and contentious, gentle rather than harsh and abusive or, and violent, willing to yield rather than demanding its own way and demanding to be right, okay? This willingness to yield is, is, is a demonstration of patience with other people even those who may be difficult and, and demanding. So that's godly wisdom. People who have godly wisdom are easy to get along with uh, because they're not self-centered and, and uh, demanding. Additionally, those possessing godly wisdom are full of good and kind deeds. They demonstrate care and compassion and kindness to other people. Rather than operating in prejudice and, and bigotry, uh, those possessing godly wisdom uh, don't discriminate, but they're fair and they're impartial and they're never pretentious, but always sincere and never hypocritical. James's definition of, of wisdom corresponds with Paul's definition of love. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. So the similarity between James's definition of wisdom and Paul's definition of love leads to the conclusion that godly wisdom is an expression of love. And love in action is an expression of of godly wisdom and faith. When we love unselfishly and uh, uh, we're willing to, to, um, to acquiesce or, or to, to allow other people to pass or, or we're willing to, to yield and let someone else have their way, then we're demonstrating the deepest level of, of godly wisdom. Now, conversely, satanic wisdom can be equated with hatred and, and jealousy because it cooperates in complete reverse of the way love operates. Where love and godly wisdom is patient, kind, and yielding, satanic wisdom is impatient, unkind, and demanding of its own way. But love and godly will, wisdom is not envious or boastful or proud. Satanic wisdom is all of these things. So satanic wisdom is also rude and self-seeking, easily angered, and keeps careful score of every offense. 
If somebody did something to that person operating in satanic wisdom, they will never forget it. They will never forgive it. Now, verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. There's a reward for practicing a wise and godly lifestyle. James promises that we will reap a harvest of righteousness. This promise of a harvest of, of righteousness or uh, or, or goodness or righteousness to the peacemaker um, um, won't be delayed. Uh, it will come into their lives as they continue to practice uh, what is right. And sometimes you're practicing what is right and, and you don't feel righteous about it and you don't, you don't really want to do it. That's okay. It doesn't matter how we feel inside. What matters is that we do the right thing. Uh, and as we do the right thing, when we do what we can do, God will take care of the rest. God will bring our feelings in line later as we move to obey him in faith. Um, now, for a time, we may see scant evidence of this harvest of goodness or righteousness in our lives. We're just obeying God, um, doing what he says, uh, but we're not uh, we're not feeling this. Uh, what God is telling us to do. We're just not feeling it. But just as natural laws are seasonal, first, the season of sowing, then the season of waiting, then finally the season of reaping. So uh, it's the same way when we sow and reap uh, spiritual things, we reap, uh, um, we reap these spiritual blessings when the harvest time comes. God is with us and God demonstrate that he's with us by uh, the things that he unfolds in our lives, okay? As we continue to exercise these characteristics of godly wisdom, they will become more and more a part of our permanent character and makeup. And then they will abound more and more in our lives. It becomes easier and easier to do what's right when you practice doing what's right. Goodness or righteousness will become the definition of, of who we are as we continue to obey God. Well, that brings us to the to the end of this chapter, chapter three of the book of James. Next time we will look at chapter four. Um, I want to just take this time, if you live in the Indianapolis area, to invite you to come worship with us at New Direction Church right here in Indianapolis. We have two campuses now, two locations, and my son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is the pastor. Our East Campus is located at 50, uh, 5330 East 38th Street uh, on the corner of 38th and Hawthorne Streets. And uh, our North Campus is located at 7701 East 86th Street. Um, we'd love to, to see you at one of our services. Um, uh, you'll be blessed. Uh, we teach the word. We love people. And we help to encourage the people of God. So, Hopefully we'll see you at one of our services if you live in the area. Uh, until next time, I want to uh, pronounce God's blessing upon you. God bless you and may God keep you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website, at EmergeCurriculum.com Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast. 